This is lecture number eight on Deuteronomy by Robert Benoy of Biblical Theological Seminary. Lecture number eight. Last week, we were discussing Romans numeral three on your outline. That's page two, the covenant form in the book of Deuteronomy and its historical implications was the title of Roman numeral three. But just to refresh our minds, capital A was the structural integrity of the book often in question. The usual approach to Deuteronomy is to find it with an original core, but a lot of supplementary increasions and a double introduction. Von Rod, and this is capital B on your outline, called attention to the significance of Deuteronomy's structural pattern in the year 1938. In 1938, Von Rod looked at the book and said there is a coherent structure to this thing. Remember, I gave you an outline of that. He once looked at the form of Deuteronomy critically, and he thought the whole thing did display structural unity. But then, capital C of the outline is Meredith Klein, who utilized the form-critical methodology, honoring the integrity of the book, and that should open up a new perspective on the structure of Deuteronomy, which in turn has implications as to its date. We spent most of our time last time on capital C. Now, points 1 through 12 was my attempt to try to summarize Klein's argument on that treaty covenant analogy, and then the implications of that analogy for the date of Deuteronomy. That brings us to the top of page 3, which is capital D, and the title of that is The Covenant Form in the Old Testament and Its Historical Implications, The Present State of Affairs in the Deuteronomy Debate. Now, probably this capital D will take up most of the time today. I hope I can finish this up today, and that leaves us two weeks to go on to the centralization of worship question that we find in Deuteronomy. But that's where we begin, then, with capital D, and under capital D we have number one, the nature of the covenant form and its origin. Is it cultic or historical? Now, before getting to number one, let me make some general comments on the heading the covenant form of the Old Testament and its historical implication, present state of affairs of the Deuteronomy debate. I think there is widespread agreement today that there is a discernible covenant form to be found in the Old Testament, and that form can be found in the structure of the book of Deuteronomy. It can be found in a number of other places as well. Most of the people who have discussed this find it in Exodus chapter 19-24. to that's the Sinai material where the covenant was originally established. Most find it in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24 is where Joshua calls all Israel to Shechem to renew their allegiance to the Lord. I think Joshua chapter 24 can rightly be called a covenant renewal ceremony. It's at the end of Joshua's life. He calls the people to renew their allegiance to the Lord at the point of his imminent death. You have a transition of leadership very much as you have at the end of Deuteronomy, which is at the end of Moses' life. This transition in leadership attempts to provide for covenant continuity, you might say, through that time of transition of leadership. But you find in Joshua chapter 24 those same elements of the treaty form that you find in the book of Deuteronomy. Then if you go on to 1 Samuel chapter 12, and my dissertation dealt with 1 Samuel chapter 12, 
you find the same, or at least a number of, the same elements of the treaty form or the covenant form. That chapter is at the close of Samuel's life, where he is providing for the transition to the monarchy for the establishment of Saul's kingdom. My own view is that 1 Samuel, chapter 11, verse 14, through chapter 12, verse 25, is a covenant renewal ceremony of Gilgal, and it's called covenant continuity with the change from the period of judges to that of the monarchy, and it's meant to provide for that transition. Now, my point is that there is quite a broad agreement that you can find the covenant form in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and 1 Samuel chapter 12. That opinion is not by any means unanimous, but it's fairly good consensus on that. However, there is no corresponding agreement on the origin of the form and, consequently, on its historical implication. That's where you get into more of a dispute than a discussion. Many will recognize the form is there, but what is its origin? What are the historical implications of the form? Some scholars have resisted attempts to draw historical conclusions from the presence of this literary covenant form. They just want to look at the form, but don't want to draw any historical conclusions from it. In my book on page 144, note 30, I name a person called Balzer, and he wrote the book called The Covenant Formulary, and he's commenting on Mendelssohn's article, Law and Covenant in Israel in the Ancient Near East. And he says of Mendelssohn, He is more interested in historical questions, while the present work limits itself to the more critical approach. No doubt further conclusions in the historical sphere can be drawn on the basis of this beginning, but I consider it methodologically dangerous to bring both sets of questions together prematurely. And that's what Bolzer is saying. Now, Balzer is hesitating to draw historical conclusions on the presence of this covenant form. He says it's methodologically dangerous to bring both sets of questions together prematurely. Then there's a German scholar there, and he says, and I'm quoting him, the historical channels by which one can explain the similarities of the Hittite covenant treaty to formulation of the Old Testament covenant are still quite unclear. And that's this German scholar. The historical connection between the Hittite treaty form and covenant, he says, is quite unclear. Then another fellow says, speaking of Balzer, and he says, and I'm quoting this other fellow about Balzer, he says, Balzer exists throughout on a sharp separation between his form-critical investigation and the historicity of the episode narrator. This reserve towards matters historical, which still lies far short of skepticism, owes its vigor to an influence of von Rad. In this way, Balzer has successfully avoided hasty and premature conclusions. An author has a right to limit his scope of material, but it is disappointing that Balzer refuses to consider historical conclusions. And that's the end of the quote. And then we have P.J. McCarthy, and he says, and I'm quoting him, No doubt too much has been claimed from this analogy and especially illegitimate historical conclusions have been drawn from it. Still, this does not negate the evidence that there is for the analogy, end quote. And what he's talking about here is the analogy between the Hittite forms and Deuteronomy. In other words, keep the analogy, but be careful about drawing historical conclusions from this analogy. 
Well, I think the caution is certainly in order when you get into form-critical questions. I think that's where form-critical method is often abused. You get a certain form, and you make very speculative kinds of reconstructions of the setting that produced that form, and historical conclusions drawn may be very questionable. See, the whole thing about the form-critical methodology is if you have a certain literary form, it presupposes a certain historical setting that gave rise to the form. That's the technical term, zitz im Leben, that gave rise to the form. And you want to get back and understand what that situation, or zitz im Leben, is that produced the literary form. It seems to me that a judicious attempt to delineate the historical setting of a particular form can be a useful interpretive tool. And it seems to me here we have a certain form, and judiciously we can ask what was the setting that gave rise to that form, and that can help us in understanding the significance and interpretation of the form in question. If you were to avoid that, you would impoverish the study of the form. I think here, when we're talking about the covenant form and its historical implications, that certainly we need caution, but we shouldn't refuse to go on with historical implications of the covenant form. Okay, number one, the outline, the nature of the covenant form and its origin, cultic or historical. Now, I've put that heading that way because the cultic and historical do not need necessarily to be opposites. Something can be cultic and historical at the same time, but in a very real sense, I think this form is cultic and historical. The covenant was established at Sinai in a situation where the covenant was ratified. There were sacrifices, sprinkling of blood, and so forth. So you could say it's cultic, but at the same time it is historical. The reason I put it that way is because of what von Rod has done with this. Remember last week, and even previous to that, we noted that when Rod spoke of a structure to the book of Deuteronomy way back in 1938. I think I gave you that last week, the way he outlined the book and the structure he saw. He proposed that that structure was derived from the cult, and he felt the structure was preserved in Israel and was passed on in Israel and found its place ultimately in the book of Deuteronomy from the preaching of the Levites and it was of cultic origins, or from reform. Now, that was in 1938. That was before anyone called attention to the Treaty Covenant analysis, long before that. Mendenhall's article is 1954, and it was quite a bit later than 1938. With the more recent treaty material being brought to light, von Rod has not changed his position although he recognizes and accepts the Treaty Covenant analogy. If you look at his book, Old Testament Theology, which was published in 1957, this is the first volume of that, page 132, that I have, and he says, quote, Comparison of ancient Near Eastern treaties, especially of those made by the Hittites in the 14th and 13th centuries B.C., with passages in the Old Testament, has revealed so many things in common between the two, particularly the matter of form, and there must be some connection between the suzerain treaties and the exposition of the details of Yahweh's covenant with Israel given in certain passages in the Old Testament. Quote. Then he gives his review of much of what we've discussed. 
the structure of the treaty, and how that compares to the biblical material. He says this is found in a number of passages in the scripture, including those I just mentioned previously. He continues, and I quote him again, Even if there are still many questions of details of the answers, there is at least no doubt that the two kinds of material are related to one another. The treaty and the covenant are materials, and the relationship in the respective form can be traced down in the text of post-apostolic times. Here, of course, Israel took over, but we remember the age of some of the relevant Old Testament material. When we remember the age of some of the relevant Old Testament material, we have to reckon that Israel became acquainted with this treaty schema or form very early on, perhaps even as soon as the time of Judges. Quote. Now, it's interesting. He says about the basic structure that Israel must have become acquainted with this very early in her history, perhaps as early as the time of Judges. Now, that was in 1957 in his book, Old Testament Theology. Von Rahn finds in Joshua 24, for example, the beginning of that covenant treaty period. He relates this in his book, Theology, in 1957, which I mentioned before. In 1964, he published his commentary on Deuteronomy. He again discusses this, but now in connection with Deuteronomy. On pages 21 to 23, he says, Finally, we must mention one type of composition used in Deuteronomy, which scholars have only recently recognized, namely, the formulary used for covenants. The discussion of this has only just begun. It's been known for some time that potentates in the ancient Near East, especially the Hittites, used to draw up their treaties with their vassals according to a definite pattern. But it was astonishing to realize that this treaty pattern can be traced in not a few parts of the Old Testament and amongst others in Deuteronomy. And I was quoting him there. Again, he discusses that form, which I won't repeat here, but he says, quote, At the time of Deuteronomy, this pattern had long been used freely for literary and homiletic purposes. Even individual units used very sporadically, places beyond all doubt, they are modeled on the full form already mentioned. And that means the Hittite form. But then he says, the question is still quite open how and when Israel came to understand its relationship to God in the form of these early Near Eastern treaties with vassals. The question is still open. How and when did Israel come to understand its relationship to God in the form of these early Near Eastern treaties with vassals? Now, later on, Fonrad says that if we ask what the Zitzimleben is demanded by the pattern in accordance with which we find it in Deuteronomy, it can have been taken only from a cultic celebration. See, there are these cultic origins ideas. He says, and I quote, It can be taken only from a cultic celebration, perhaps from a feast of renewal of the covenant. This conjecture is supported by the insertion of a formal covenant making, Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 16 to 19. Thus the classical pattern of the regular covenant formulary appears in Deuteronomy, in any case, only in mutilated form. Its setting is the cult in which the form of Deuteronomy was originally rooted, but has been already abandoned in the book as we now have it. 
That is because its contents now appear in the form of homiletic instruction to the laity. End quote. In other words, what von Rad is saying is, even though you find that treaty covenant analogy in the structure of the book of Deuteronomy, the basic form of Deuteronomy is in the form of homiletic instruction to laity. He gets right back to his so-called Levitical theory that the Levites preserve this covenant form in preaching and it's their recollection of ancient traditions preserved in the cult and passed on down the generations that give rise to the form later on used in Deuteronomy. So then when it comes to his conclusion of the dates of Deuteronomy, page 26, he says, quote, We shall suppose one of the northern sanctuaries, Shechem or Bethel, to be Deuteronomy's place of origin, and the century before 621 must be its date. There's no sufficient reason for going further back, end quote. In other words, it's the century before 621 B.C. Now, that would be in the 700s. Okay, that's fairly late, and he feels that the form that you find in Deuteronomy is the form derived from the cult and preserved by the preaching of the Levites. So, you see, it's really of a cultic derivation for the origin of the form even though he recognizes the parallel with the Hittite treaty material. Now, it seems to me that the cultic origin hypothesis really doesn't give an adequate explanation for the nature of the form in question and its use in the Old Testament. It really doesn't answer the more basic question of the occasion and reason for the initial utilization of the form. When was that? He really doesn't answer that question. Now, the Bible represents the initial utilization of the treaty covenant as being in the presentation of the covenantal materials given by God to Moses at Sinai. That is the origin of it. So, as Klein says, and I'm quoting here, God used the legal instrument of the Hittite treaty form, which was the known form of its day, as a means of presenting this covenant to his people and structuring it along the lines of that known legal instrument. End quote. I go on to J.A. Thompson in an article called, quote, The Cultic Credo and the Sinai Tradition. End quote. It's on page five of your bibliography in the Reform Theological Review. And he says this, quote, from Campbell. There seems little reason to doubt that the historical prologue in the secular treaties was the basic aspect of any treaty, nor need we doubt that it represented, albeit perhaps in some enhanced form, a correct outline of the preceding historical events, which were paraded as a strong argument for the acceptance of the treaty by the vassal. The historical prologue in the treaties gives us real history, tells us a previous relationship between the great king and the vassal, which provides the basis of obligation on the part of the vassal towards the great king. End quote. All right, he says, and I quote him again, Von Rad does, of course, take note of the historical recital of the Sinai events when he discusses Deuteronomy and Exodus, chapters 19 to 20. End quote. So the first part of Deuteronomy, which functions as historical prologue, goes back and reviews the situation at Sinai. But for von Rad, this historical narration is merely a cultic legend of very doubtful historicity. But the question should be asked whether a cultic legend could serve the purpose demanded. 
See, the way historical prologue functions is these things really have happened if they're going to be the basis for an ongoing relationship. Thompson says, It ought not be assumed that a cultic liturgy should be divorced from the underlying historical events. I think that's the point. Maybe there was a preservation that's formed in the cult. That's somewhat speculative, but you see, where did this form start? Where did it originate? What was the historical basis of the thing? It seems to me that that point from von Rod's cultic derivation view is insufficient. That relationship, the covenant relationship, was established on a specific historical occasion. The form presupposes that there was a specific historical occasion when the covenant was originally and formally established. So, under number one, the nature of the covenantal form, is it cultic or historical, it seems to me that von Rad doesn't do justice to that question of the origin of the form. We go back to Sinai to find the setting, or the initial introduction, to that form of Israel's religious tradition and belief. All right, number two, we're talking about the present state of affairs in the Deuteronomy debate. And number two is the evolution of the treaty form and its implications for the date of the book of Deuteronomy. When we discussed Klein's view last week, I hope it became clear to you that a great part of his case for a mosaic origin lies with his claim that the treaty form went through an evolutionary development in the sense that there was a classic Hittite pattern that was not duplicated in later treaties, particularly the Esarhaddon treaties and the Safiri treaties. Now I want to look at that question a little more closely, precisely because that is a point that has been questioned, and there is a lot that rests upon this point. So let's go to little a of the outline. The vassal treaties of Esarhaddon compared with the Hittites specifically the Suzerain Treaty of the Hittites. And I want to make one introductory remark. The vassal treaties of Esarhaddon were discovered in 1955 by British archaeologists in what is present-day Iraq in a place called Nimrud. The tablets were found in a throne room of the Temple of Nabu amid debris resulting from destruction of the building by fire in 612 B.C. by the Medes. These texts were found and identified as a treaty by a woman named Barbara Parker. It was a treaty made by Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, in 672 B.C. There was more than one treaty, but the text was the same. It's just that the treaty was concluded with a number of different individuals, and the name changes. Not Esarhaddon's, but the subordinate names, or the vassals' names, change. The texts are duplicates, differing only in the names of the various rulers with whom the treaties were made. So the treaties really were treaty texts with Esarhaddon and various vassal states. But D.J. Weissman published them in the volume that's called Iraq, volume 20, in 1958. Iraq is the name of the journal, and again, 1958, volume 20. If you look at those treaties, you'll find that certain elements are very much like those of the earlier Hittite treaties. There are some resemblances. But in spite of those similarities, there are also some important differences. You'll see that difference immediately if you look at the structure. If you look at the structure, you'll see it follows those six elements. First, the preamble. Second, God's as witnesses. 
third, stipulations, fourth, curses, fifth, oath of allegiance, and sixth, another section of curses, curses in the form of similes. Now, let me make a few comments on each one of these. First, the preamble. In the Hittite treaties, it introduces the parties to the treaty, and in the case of these Esarhaddon treaties, it then pinpoints the purpose of the document. Esarhaddon says in the treaty, and I'm quoting here, Concerning Ashurbanipal, the crown prince, son of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, end quote. The point of this treaty was to ensure that when Esarhaddon died, this particular son, Ashurbanipal, the crown prince, would succeed him. So it had to do with succession to the throne of Assyria. The purpose then was concerning Ashurbanipal, crown prince, son of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. And this treaty was to be binding over all the rulers that Esarhaddon held power over in the Assyrian Empire. There are a number of copies of the different individuals that have been found named in the treaties. All right, that was the preamble. Gods at Witnesses is the second section in which you have a list of the gods in whose presence the treaty was concluded. There is indication in the text of the ceremony in which the images of these gods were brought forth and before whom the treaty was officially enacted and put into effect. Seventeen deities are enumerated, so you have that list of gods as the second part of the treaty. Then there are the stipulations. The stipulations are rather narrowly focused on this sense. They are designed to ensure the permanence of the rule of Ashurbanipal as he is designated successor to Esarhaddon. That's the concern of the treaty, as I mentioned before. So what the stipulations attempt to address is a very conceivable kind of situation that might be a threat to Ashurbanipal's position as successor. You almost have to read the treaty to appreciate the extent of the provisions and the contingencies that the treaties cover. Now, there are 33 clauses that the vassal swears to keep. They can be classified into five groups. First, those that ensure the loyalty of the vassal to Ashurbanipal as Esarhaddon's successor. Second, those that outline action to be taken against rebels. Third, those that preclude attempts to usurp the throne. Fourth, those that prohibit intrigue with other members of the royal household aimed at dethroning Ashurbanipal. For example, not to respond to any approaches to turn Esarhaddon against Ashurbanipal as crown prince, and not to be influenced by anyone claiming personal power to report to Ashurbanipal any plot to make division between Ashurbanipal and his brothers. Fifth, it emphasizes the perpetual and binding nature of the oaths taken. Stipulations are narrowly focused. It all has to do with security, the right of succession, and the continuing power of Ashurbanipal after Esarhaddon's death. After 355 lines of stipulations governing the vassal's relationship to Esarhaddon and Ashurbanipal, then you have the document protected by the pronouncement of the curse on anyone who changes, neglects, or transgresses the oaths of the tablet, or erases any of them. Each god is separately named, and a particular curse characteristic of the activity of each particular god is pronounced. You had all these deities listed with the curses, and each one of those deities is listed again with a particular curse linked to each one. For example, we read the following. 
May Shamash, the light of the heavens and earth, not judge you justly, saying, May it be dark in your eyes, walk in darkness. Shamash is the sun god. So you have a curse connected with that particular characteristic of the deity involved. So you have the wrath of many of these deities invoked on someone who has transgressed the stipulation. Then fifth, an oath of allegiance. The vassals in this section swear allegiance to Esarhaddon and to Ashurbanipal, and the language here switches to the first-person plural, which indicates the document was to be used in public ceremony, in which the people then say collectively, We will do this. We will follow Ashurbanipal. He is a legitimate descendant and son and crown prince and ruler after Esarhaddon. Six, there are curses in the form of similes after the oath of allegiance. You return the curses. Most of these are formulated in a style that uses similes from common observation. Let me give you an example. I quote, Just as male and female kids and male and female lambs are slid open and their entrails roll down over their feet, so may the entrails of your sons and daughters roll down over your feet. End quote. That's, of course, the sons and daughter of anyone who betrays this treaty. It's a long section with similes of that sort called curse similes. D.J. Weissman suggests that a number of them, if not all of them, may have been demonstrated before the people to vividly illustrate the results of the breaking of the treaty. In other words, maybe pieces of the entrails of male and female kids rolling down over their feet were used as illustrative examples of what would happen if someone disobeyed the treaty. They may have sliced some of the animals open to demonstrate and show what will happen to you. You almost have to read this to get the picture. For example, we read this, Just as rain does not fall from a brazen heaven, so may rain and dew not come upon your fields and meadows. May it rain burning coals instead of dew on your land. Just as a starving ewe puts the flesh of her young to her mouth, even so may you feed your hunger with the flesh of your brothers and your sons, your daughters. Just as a snake and a mongoose do not enter and lie down together in the same hole and think only of cutting off each other's legs, so may you and your womenfolk not enter the same room without thinking about cutting off each other's lives. End quote. After that section, the treaty ends rather abruptly with the date and a brief statement of the treaty's concerns, and that is Ashurbanipal being appointed crown prince and successor to Esarhaddon. That's a brief survey of the Assyrian treaty covenant form. Number three of the outline begins to draw some contrasts and the differences between the Assyrian treaty pact and the Hittite one. And number three is the absence of the historical prologue. As we noted earlier, the Hittite treaties have a rather consistent form with little deviation. The most striking contrast between the Hittite treaties and the Assyrian is that second section of the Hittite treaty form is not found in the Assyrian treaty form. Remember, the Hittite treaties went like this. Preamble, historical prologue, stipulations, basically dealing curses, witnesses, and blessings. The Assyrian treaties do not have the historical prologue. Now that's an important difference for this reason. The historical prologue in the Hittite treaty sets the tone of the treaty. It's on the basis of the benevolent acts of the great king that are enumerated in the historical prologue, 
that the vassal has a sense of responsibility and obligation to obedience through the treaty's stipulations. So you get the historical prologue, which is followed by the stipulations. The historical prologue provides the sense of obligation on the part of the vassal to the benevolent great king that makes the treaty. So it's on the basis of those beneficent acts that the great king justifies the demand for observance of the stipulations by the vassal. There is a historical prologue, or at least room for one, on broken text of every presently available Hittite treaty. Now I say that even though that's a point of debate that we will discuss later. One of the early people to discuss the treaty form was George Mendenhall of University of Michigan in a study in the 1950s, and the initial study of the Hittite treaties before Mendenhall called attention to the analogy between the Old Testament covenant materials and the Hittite treaty set. The treaties had actually been published long before that and had been studied, but the connection had never been made with the covenant underlying the Old Testament. There was previously a Hungarian fellow called Viktor Koroshek, who published a volume in 1931 in German discussing the Hittite treaty texts. There was a standard treatment of the Hittite treaty text that this book had without the biblical comparison. Koroshek said in 1931 of the historical prologue, and I'm quoting him here, the constant recurrence of such expression shows that in Hattusa, which is the capital of the Hittite Empire, one regarded it as an essential element of every vassal treaty. In this study of the text, that was his conclusion about the historical prologue. Now, more recently, throughout the work of T.J. McCarthy, they published this volume, Treatment of Covenant. I believe it's in your bibliography, which has now come out in a later edition than even this one. On top of page 5 of Treaty of Covenant, 1978, McCarthy contests the idea that every Hittite treaty has a historical prologue, and he says some of them don't have a historical prologue, and consequently he says the historical prologue was not an essential element of the Hittite treaty form. Now, you get involved in a lot of detailed discussions about that issue, but let me just call your attention to McCarthy, who says it is not an essential element of the form. Herbert Huffman disagrees with McCarthy on that. I don't have it in your bibliography, unfortunately, but Herbert Huffman wrote an article called The Exodus, Sinai, and the Credo in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly, Volume 27 of 1965, pages 109 and 110. And he interacts with McCarthy on this question. He supports Koroshek. Huffman says, and I'm quoting him here, the omission of the historical prologue and the tendency for more elaborate and colorful curses in the First Millennium Treaty, that is, the Esarhaddon Treaty, represents a basic change in the concept of the treaty relationship. Power replaces persuasion, such that although the treaty form continues to be the same in many respects, it is misleading to state that the treaty remains basically unchanged, contra D.J. Weissman and McCarthy, who minimize the difference in the treaties. End quote. Now, I won't take time to go into the detailed discussion of that, but let me just mention McCarthy, and he says five of the treaties, the early treaties, do not have a historical prologue. And so he says history is not an essential element of the Hittite treaty form. Now, Huffman points out that if you look down here at the five treaties, 
that McCarthy says are missing a historical prologue, Huffman analyzes all five of them and concludes that McCarthy really doesn't have a basis for the conclusion he's drawing looking at those five treaties. For example, the first one, a treaty between Mercilus II and Nikmetath of Amura, Huffman says it does have a prologue, but it's a very short one. He says, quote, As for you, Nikmetath, I restored you to your country and caused you to sit as king on the throne of your father. End quote. Well, that's a historical prologue. It's only one sentence, but you can see what Huffman is saying. The historical prologue is there, even though McCarthy says it's not. Frankly, I think Huffman is correct here. The second example, the treaty between Mercilus II and Caesales, is a fragmentary treaty. It doesn't have a prologue in the expected place, but Huffman says that's not decisive. He says, although McCarthy states that in no instance does the historical prologue occur anywhere except between titles and stipulations, he has overlooked the Hittite version of the treaty between Supilulima and Arzirus, in which the sequence is preamble-stipulation-prologue. Normally it's preamble-prologue-stipulation. Now he finds there is a prologue in this text, but it's in a different order. It doesn't follow the standard order, but it is there. The third treaty, the treaty between Supilulima and Hukanas, does have a prologue. Again, it's brief. Here's what the prologue says. See you, Hukanas, I have received you as a simple but capable man, have honored you, and have received you and Hattusas in the midst of the people, and have introduced you in a friendly way. I have given you my sister for a wife. End quote. This functions as a historical prologue. I won't go through four and five of the treaties that are mentioned by McCarthy, but with all of them, you get into a rather technical debate. Does the treaty or does not the treaty have a prologue? McCarthy says no, but then Huffman has shown that they really do. There's a reasonable response. So that the absence of a historical prologue is a deviation from the Hittite form, and it's an important one, as I mentioned before, because the prologue sets the tone for the treaty. Instead of a loving, trusting relationship between the treaty partners, as you have in the Hittite form, when you get to the Assyrian treaties, there's no historical prologue. There are no benevolent acts of the great king that are enumerated first. Instead, you have the imposition of raw power on the vassal. The vassal has to do all these things in the treaty, or else you have a double list of curses that he's to be plagued with if he doesn't. There are no benevolent acts on the part of the suzerain towards the vassal. So, the lack of a historical prologue is not only the difference in literary form, but it also sets a very different spirit in connection with the relationship between the treaty partners. So, the quality of the relationship established between the suzerain and his vassal is quite different from the Hittite treaty form to the Assyrian treaty form. Well, let's take a break and we'll come back and look at this some more later. That is lecture number eight on Deuteronomy by Robert Vinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary.